in Revelation chapter 2, we see a couple of churches that we're going to cover tonight, and I'll just be quite transparent with you tonight. Last week, Pastor Heath Spivey covered the first church, and then on Sunday, Pastor Tool covered the second church, and so when Pastor and I were talking about his being out of town tonight, he said, why don't you cover the next three churches? Like, wait a second, that math doesn't add up. And so we're going to talk quickly tonight and cover three churches. We're going to cover the church in Pergamos, Thyatira, and Sardis. Here's what I'd like for us to do. We're going to read a few verses as we begin. Would you mind standing with me? Uh, kind of shake it up just a little bit as we begin, and we will read a few verses together, and then I'll, I'll let you be seated. I'm going to read uh, the first verse out of each one of these three churches uh, to begin tonight. In Revelation chapter 2, we see in verse 12, And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he which hath a sharp sword with two edges. We see Jesus there being exalted. That's Jesus that has the sharp sword with two edges. Verse 18, we see the beginning of the, the, the word to Thyatira, and unto the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. Jesus is being exalted here. Uh, we see in chapter 3 and verse 1, uh, and unto the angel of the, the church in Sardis write, these things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God, and this is the Holy Spirit, the, the fullness of the Holy Spirit here, it hath the seven spirits, Jesus, and the seven stars, Jesus is the one that is being exalted. Now we know because we're looking at our Bibles and we see red letters that Jesus is the one writing, but make no mistake that we always need to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. If we want to stay away from the problems that each one of these churches have, can I tell you that tonight that there's one simple solution? Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. And tonight, if you get nothing else out of the message, hey, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Let's pray and ask God to bless our night tonight. Lord, thank you for the opportunity that we have to dig into the Word of God. Uh, Lord, I pray that as we walk through these next three churches, trying to, uh, t trying to tackle quite a bit of this passage here, Lord, I pray that it would be clear, I pray that it would be applicable, and I pray that it would be exactly what we stand in need of tonight. Lord, I pray that you would teach us, that you would guide us, and, and that you would help us to make the, the changes in our own lives that you want us to make. And we'll give you the praise for it all, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, you may be seated. Uh, tonight, kick, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Rosedale, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Christian, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. And these three churches, let me give a quick illustration of these three churches so we understand what's happening in these passages. We see first the church in Pergamos. Pergamos was a major cultural center in the Greek world. It was known as the most outstanding example of, a, of city planning in that period of time. It was known for its education and masterpieces of art, including many monuments that, that are still seen today. 
They built an enormous library that was only excelled by that at Alexandria. In fact, that library consisted of over 200,000 volumes, so it was known to be this enormous epicenter for education. The city sat almost 1,100 feet high, which provided a natural fortress for the city. However, it was also known as a city of the gods. Asclepius was the city's chief god, and he was considered to be the god of healing. People came from all over the world to visit this god because they were seeking healing from this god. So they were coming to this city to seek that healing. This city was known as the center for four idolatrous cults. In fact, if you look in verse 13, it says, I know thy works and where thou dwellest even where Satan's seat is. It was tough to be a Christian in Pergamos. It was known to be the seat of Satan himself. These idolatrous cults were were taking over. Many people were worshiping these idols and even Satan himself. And yet, the church is being commended for their faithfulness. Look in verse 13, I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. And thou holdest fast my name and hast not denied my faith. What a great commendation Jesus is giving to this church. Even in those days where Antipas was a faithful martyr who was slain among you, where Satan dwelleth. It was tough to be a Christian in Pergamos. Ask Antipas his experience. It was at this massive temple to Caesar. Antipas was martyred. Every year they would pick someone to head up and represent all, to go in and burn incense and lead in this declaration that Caesar is Lord. Antipas was one of those that was selected to join in. But as a Christian, he held fast God's name and did not deny his faith. The one heading it up said to Antipas, look at the masses that are against you. The whole world is out there. The whole world is against you. And it was said that Antipas replied to this one that was heading this up and he says, then I am against the whole world. He said, I'd rather follow Jesus to my death than follow after these idolatrous cults and win the respect of those around me. I'd rather follow Jesus. And with that, we're told that they took him and they placed him in this brass, hollowed out bull type character. And then they lit a fire underneath of him and burned him and killed him for his faith. Antipas held fast to his faith in the face of this opposition. It was tough to be a Christian in Pergamos. But for the most part, the church was remaining faithful. People like Antipas were more willing to die for their faith than to give in to the cultural norms that were of that time. But there were some. Uh, There were some in the church that were beginning to compromise. They were allowing the mixing of the doctrine. Look in verse 14. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit fornication. 
so hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Remember, we just talked about the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Jesus, throughout these churches, continually gave each church a praise and then a problem. The praise here, Pergamus, Jesus tells them, even though you are at ground zero for Satan's presence, you've done well to remain faithful and hold fast my name. The problem, some in your midst are now compromising, allowing the doctrine of idolatry to be mixed within the church. Look at Thyatira. Thyatira was much different than Pergamos. It was essentially a secular town. It was known to be a working man's town. It was known for its industry, the industries of pottery and its dyes and its cloth making. It's almost no surprise that they were commended for their works. But look in verse 19. I know thy works, charity and service and faith and thy patience and thy works. It's interesting that thy works is mentioned at the beginning and also the end of this list of things that they were being commended for. You may remember a lady by the name of Lydia. Remember Lydia in Scripture, she was the first convert of Paul and Silas in Philippi, which she would have been the first convert in Europe because she was the first convert of Paul and Silas as she was in Philippi at that time. She was a merchant from Thyatira, the Bible tells us. She was known to be a successful businesswoman. She was a dealer in fine purple cloth and dye. Most believe that she would have been extremely wealthy. She was looking for the answers to life's questions, and when Paul and Silas presented the gospel to her, she quickly responded by accepting and receiving the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not only did she receive the gospel, but she went and told all of her family. She went and told all of her family about the gospel, and her entire family received the gospel. They were saved, and they were all baptized. She then began to serve other people. She quickly told Paul and Silas, hey, you can stay at my house while you're here. She served them while they were there. Lydia was from Thyatira. But Revelation tells us of another woman quite different than Lydia that was in Thyatira. She's referred to as Jezebel. Look in verse 20, it says, Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. Her name may have been Jezebel or John may be using this name Jezebel to symbolize the types of things that she was involved with. Uh, But she was having an effect within the church at Thyatira. The praise of Thyatira. Jesus tells them that he sees their works He sees their love for others. He sees their service to others. He sees their faith, their patience, and again, their works for the second time. But the problem, the church was allowing the teaching that immorality was not a serious matter for the church. Can I tell you tonight that immorality is a serious matter for the church? And he, she was teaching that it was not a serious matter. That was a big problem that Jesus was highlighting within the church at Thyatira. Let's highlight Sardis for just a minute. Sardis became a two-part town. 
It was originally begun as kind of a hilltop citadel. Uh, but once it outgrew that location, it kind of branched to a lower part that would have been on the banks of the Pectolis River. The lower town was where the ordinary citizens lived, and the upper town was for its wealthy citizens, also for royal members, and the palace was up there. Sardis was considered overall an affluent town. We see the praise that Jesus gives. He says in verse 1, I know thy works, that thou hast a name that thou livest. But wait a second, is that really a praise? He's saying that you've got a great reputation in the area. You've got a great name in the area. He's telling them you've got a great name, but I would, I would propose to you tonight that he was not giving them praise at all because their reputation was not backed up by their character. Their reputation was what people believed about them, but their character, what they truly were on the inside, was very different than their reputation. Their, their reputation was being held, all of these things that they were doing on the outside, but on the inside, they did not have the same character following Jesus Christ. He says, I know thy works, that thou hast a name that thou livest, but the last three words matter, and art dead. They had a spiritual reputation, but no spiritual character. They looked the part, but they were not authentic. We see three churches, Pergamos, Thyatira, and Sardis. These were written to each church specifically. We learned on Sunday that these were written to all churches generally, Rosedale, and they are also written to each of us personally. Let's take time tonight to see some ways that we can apply each one of these churches to our own heart tonight. If you're taking notes tonight, point number one is reject the enemy's attacks. Reject the enemy's attacks. We know in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, it says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. As Christians, we know that we have three common enemies. We simply refer to them as the world, the flesh, and the devil. And these three common enemies, you can write all three of them down now, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we see the world first represented in our churches. Look in Pergamos, verse 14. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. So hast, also, so hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Balak, you might remember him, he was the king of Moab back in Numbers chapter 22. The Moabites were greatly afraid of the Israelites. They saw them in a, as a, a number of people that were immeasurable. And, and this number of Israelites, they were afraid were going to come in and take over the Moabites because they had just seen that happen to the Amorites. The Israelites utterly destroyed the Amorites. And so Balak realizes as the king of the Moabites, I'm going to need to act fast before we are utterly destroyed. So he hatches this plan. 
He sends messengers to Balaam. Balaam was considered to kind of be a prophet at that time. And he asked Balaam, hey, come over here to Moab. I need you to curse my enemies, this, this, the Israelites that are coming at us at this time. And he asked Balaam to come and curse the people of Israel for them. And if you follow that passage in Numbers chapter 22, 23, 24 through, we, we see that Balak's messengers went and, and asked Balaam to come over. And God clearly responded to Balaam and he says, don't do it. Do not go with them. The messengers of the king kept coming to Balaam. There were more messengers that came. And they're wondering why he's not responding to Balak. But God's telling him, hey, don't do it. Don't do it. Uh, Balaam, if you'll come up, uh, the next messenger say, the king will promote thee unto a very great honor, and I will do whatever thou sayest unto me. They begin to entice him uh, with power. Uh, and Balaam speaks back to the messengers that came to him. He says, okay, power is good, but how about uh, what's power got to do with, uh, with anything if I don't have some resources? And so he said, I, I like the power. I'll accept the power uh, potentially, but I, I want to negotiate for a house full of silver and gold. And so he asked him for a, a, a house full of silver and gold. Balaam's doctrine was simply based upon convenience. If the price is right, I'm willing to go against what God said. I'm willing to do what, what you're asking me to do if the price is right. We know in 1 Timothy that the Bible says, For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after they have erred, from the faith and pierce themselves through with many sorrows. Rosedale, tonight, when we place a higher priority on money, when we place a higher priority on things, when we place a higher priority on events, when we place a higher priority on the world rather than God, we are walking the same path as Balaam. We're walking in a very dangerous path. So Balaam accepted these gifts or was going to accept these gifts and began to walk that path. And he jumps on his donkey and begins to go that path to go see what is going to happen there. He's been promised these gifts, this power, this money. And it spoke volumes to him. And he said, I'm willing to go and see what God would allow me to do. And he begins to continue to invoke God's name, but he's going against God at the very same time. And he begins to go on this path. And you probably remember the story. Balaam got to a certain point and all of a sudden his donkey stopped. And his donkey stopped in the road because he, he saw an angel of the Lord that was standing in front of him. But Balaam's eyes were still covered. Balaam was not able to see this angel of the Lord that was standing in front of the donkey. And so Balaam gets angry at the donkey and so Balaam begins to hit the donkey, and he drove him a different direction. And so all of a sudden, the donkey goes a different direction, and all of a sudden, the angel of the Lord is still standing squarely in front of this donkey. And as he begins to hit that donkey again, you need to obey me. That donkey begins to go a different direction, and all of a sudden, he's up against the wall, and he goes down to the ground, and Balaam is knocked off of this donkey and the donkey steps on his foot and crushes his foot. And now Balaam's really ticked off. 
And so he hits that donkey again. Why won't you obey what I'm telling you to do? And all of a sudden, the donkey begins to speak with him. And he says, what have I done unto thee that thou hast smitten me these three times? And Balaam, of course, is looking back at this donkey, naturally wondering, how did he speak to me? And he's, he's bewildered. No, he begins to speak back to the donkey. A natural reaction when a donkey begins to speak to you, hey, have a full conversation with the donkey. Balaam begins to speak back to this donkey, because thou hast mocked me. I would that there was a, a sword in mine hand, for now I would kill thee. And later on in this passage, we see that, that Balaam, his eyes were opened and he began to realize the folly of his actions. But Balaam's doctrine was based upon convenience. Balaam's doctrine was, if the price is right, I'm willing to do something that God has asked me not to do. I'll still mix God's name in it and make it sound good, but I'm willing to go against God if the price is right. Later, Balaam in, in Numbers, I think it's chapter 39, would influence the Israelites to turn to worshiping idols. That was Balaam's doctrine. Of course, we've already discussed the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Instead of holding fast to the doctrine of the Word of God, instead of keeping their eyes fixed on Jesus, they were forming their doctrine on the world's philosophies. They were forming their doctrine on worshiping idols, money, things, and power. Colossians 2.8 tells us that beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. Tonight, can I give you that same warning that if we are rooting our doctrine, if we're rooting our practices after man instead of the Word of God, we are in a dangerous place. We need to be following after God rather than following after a man or following after the world's philosophy. We have these three common enemies. The world, the flesh, and the devil. The world steers us a direction philosophically. The world steers us a direction practically that Jesus says, hey, that's not why I gave my life so that you can go in this direction that the world is teaching you is okay. I gave my life and separated you so that you can follow after me, so that you can follow Follow my word so that you can live the gospel of Jesus Christ out in your life day by day. You don't have to follow the world. The world. The flesh. Let's look at the flesh. In verse 20, we see the flesh creeping up in the church at Thyatira. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee. Because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. Some in the church were downplaying the seriousness of sexual immorality. Furthermore, it was leading them into idolatry. Instead of keeping their eyes fixed on Jesus, they were being led and ruled by their flesh. Look in chapter 3, verse 1, Sardis. And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, these things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest, and art dead, and art dead. It was a dead church. If you've ever been a part of a dead church, it leaves you wanting something more. 
Imagine you're crawling uh, in this scorched near death across a hot burning desert. And and you're crawling uh, in this desert and and you're dying of thirst and you feel like you're close to perishing. But ahead you see a sign that reads, cool, clear, life-giving water, only five miles ahead. This sign gives you hope. It gives you renewed energy. It allows you to continue that tormenting crawl upon the parched sand. As you arrive at this promised place, you see this magnificent building. It's radiant in its beauty. The sign outside invites you in, even beckoning you with the promise of life-giving water. So you crawl through the entrance into this glorious building and there before you is this promised well. It even has a bucket that is there. It's ready to be let down and filled with water to quench your thirst and pour life back into your body. Finally, I'm here. With that last bit of strength, you begin to lower that bucket into the well. You're expecting this splash of water as the bucket hits the water, but it never comes. The only sound that is there is this dull thud of the bucket hitting the dry, barren ground. You think that perhaps you're delirious, so so you reel that that bucket back in and you only find that it's full of dust. Dust that cannot quench. It only deepens the thirst and destroys all hope that you ever had. Maybe it seems like a far-fetched illustration. But there are so many people that are walking into churches all over this nation experiencing, wanting to experience the the life-giving water that only the Word of God can provide. And they're walking in their parts. They're walking in there needing a touch from Jesus. Needing that, that, that water that can is the only water that can quench them. And they go in and they're getting that dry bucket of dust that they're raising up and they walk back out the same person they were when they walked in. They walk out because the church has given them nothing. The church has given them something that they thought that they wanted instead of giving them the exact thing that they really need. They gave them a message from a man rather than the message from God. And tonight I'm thankful to be a part of a church that every time that we come in, we have scripturally soaked sermons. I'm thankful that it's not man's word that we're hanging on to. It's the very words of God that we can walk out of here being different people because of the word of God every single time we come in here. We don't base what we do on fleshly practices. We base it on the word of God. I'm so thankful that we have a pastor that is instant in season and out of season, that gives us the life-giving Word of God. John 6, 63 says, It is the Spirit that quickeneth. The flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. This evening, let's hang on to the words of life. Let's hang on to the the Word of God. But as Sardis did, they they looked the part as they walked in on Sunday morning, but they weren't taking the Word of God with them on Monday through Saturday. Uh, This evening, let's resolve to take the Word of God with us all throughout the week as well. We see the the world, the flesh, and also, also the devil. Verse 13, I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is, the devil himself. And thou holdest fast my name and hast not denied my faith. 
even in those days where Antipas was a faithful martyr who was slain among you, where Satan dwelleth. I talked to an old preacher in Philadelphia about 15 years ago. We were having a great conversation about the, the, the state, spiritual state of Christianity at the time. And he said the thing that he has noticed in his church is so many people give the devil too much credit. He said, anytime somebody is caught up in some sin, they say, well, the devil made me do it. The devil made me do it. He said, I'm here to tell you, he said, we have so much problem with the world and the flesh, the devil doesn't have to make us do anything. The world and the flesh quickly draw us away from Christ. The devil doesn't have to make us do anything. We, have, we serve a power that is greater than the devil. We serve a power that is greater than the flesh. We serve a power that is greater than the world. Greater is he that is within you than he that is within the world. Can I remind you tonight that the devil is not omnipresent. The devil is likely not in this room tonight. But he has these tools that we are so quickly sucked into. The flesh and the world that the devil doesn't have to be omnipresent because we are falling on our own swords. We're following the world ourselves. We're following our own fleshly desires. The devil doesn't have to make us do anything. Sin sometimes creeps in because of our own problems, not because the devil made us do it. But, you know, Pergamos, they were where the devil was, and yet they remained faithful. 1 Peter 5, 8 says, be sober, be be vigilant because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring, roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. The devil is real, but, but so often we get tripped up by the world and the flesh. The devil doesn't have to make us do anything. I'm glad that Jesus, the author here, doesn't leave us hanging. He tells us that there is an answer for our problems. Quickly tonight, point number two, repent after falling short. Repent after falling short. What's the answer for being focused on the world, the flesh, and the devil? Repent. What's the answer for false doctrine? Verse 16 tells us, Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He says, Repent. What's the answer for sexual immorality that is so rampant today within our society? Uh, what is the answer for sexual immorality that is so rampant within our churches? Hey, repent. Uh, repent. And Jesus says in verse 40 or 22, Behold, I cast her, uh, will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. Sexual immorality always hurts someone. It, it hurts God, it hurts others, and it hurts the individual himself. And Jesus says, repent. He goes on to say, if you haven't fallen into this temptation, verse 25, hold fast. Aren't you glad there's forgiveness at the cross? Even when we mess up, there's forgiveness at the cross. But aren't you also glad that the Holy Spirit gives us the ability to resist temptation? 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able. Uh, but will with that temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. 
What's the answer for sexual immorality today? Repentance. What's the answer for hypocrisy? Having a reputation but not having character? Repentance. Revelation 3.3 Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent. 1 John 1.9 If we confess our sins, repent. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He says, hey, the answer to the problem in your churches today is repentance. And when we repent, there's forgiveness. I'm so thankful for the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Lastly, tonight, point number three, remain focused on Jesus and His Word. Remain focused on Jesus and His Word. Revelation 3, 3 says, Remember, therefore, how thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent. Remember all that Christ saved you from. Remember the truth that you've heard. Hold fast to those things that you know are right. Remain focused on Jesus and His Word. You notice back in chapter 2, verse 12, it says Jesus is the one here with that sword with two edges and unto the angel in the church of the church in Pergamos. This is the town, remember, that has that library with over 200,000 volumes, has so many books of learning. He says, to that city, that church, write, these things saith he that hath the sharp sword with two edges. If you go back to chapter 1, it says, out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Of course, we know in Hebrews 4, for the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. You can take all of man's books, those 200,000 volumes, and God says to the church at Pergamos, there is one book that overshadows them all, and it's God's book. It's the two-edged sword. It's the Word of God. We have that one book, and Jesus is commending them, the church at Pergamos, for holding fast to that name, to that book, to that God. Hold fast, Rosedale. Hold fast, individual Christian, to the name of Jesus Christ. Hold fast to the Word of God. Jesus says, hold fast. Verse 13 says, I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is, and thou holdest fast my name and hast not denied my faith. Hold fast. That idea of holding fast is that idea of embracing. We need to hold fast to the truth of the Word of God. We need to hold fast to the name of Jesus Christ. We literally embrace the name of Jesus Christ. And the answer for all of our problems is that embrace of Jesus Christ, that embrace of the Word of God, knowing that the answers are found to all of life's questions in the Word of God, knowing that the answer is found in a relationship with Jesus Christ. I remember several years ago, the, uh, we had a teen uh, activity at this campground and there were a lot of different events that were at this teen activity, and because my wife and I were attending that, we were able to take our youngest son, and at that time, he was probably about seven years old. And so my little seven-year-old son, much different than what he looks like today, my little seven-year-old son, he wanted to participate in everything. There was a zip line, and, but there was this, also this large swing. 
And, and this large swing was very interesting because they, they would put you on this swing and then they pull you way up high, many, many stories high, and then all of a sudden that release coming back through. And it was over this ravine, so it looked like you were going off into this great ravine. And my son, he's like, I want to do that. I want, I want to ride on that swing. And, and so we decided, okay, uh, we asked them, is it safe? Can, can a seven-year-old be on that swing? The teens look like they're okay. It looks like they're frightened, but uh, can, can we have this seven-year-old in the swing? Yes, as long as dad goes with them. So we decided to go on this swing together. And actually, there was another person on there, so there were three of us. So we were going to catch some really good speed coming onto this swing. So I remember my little seven-year-old sitting in between me and another person, and we're being pulled up onto that swing, pulled up story, many stories high, and you never know when it's going to release. It's that anticipation that that's going to release at some point. And we're being pulled high, and his, he's got this grin from, from ear to ear that he is excited about what's about to take place. And, and you can see that, that grin that is just that, that pure, raw excitement. And we, and we keep going higher and higher and higher. And, and he, he's ready to go. And, and all of a sudden, it released. And we begin to swing. And I look over and I see something very different on my seven-year-old son. I see that grin that was ear to ear all of a sudden go to sheer terror. And with that sheer terror, his immediate reaction was, he gave me this death grip embrace that I will never forget. I had marks for weeks. He was embracing me, and he held on for dear life. He thought for sure he was flying into that ravine as soon as that swing went that direction. And so he is holding on to me throughout that entire swing. And until we stop that swing, and of course it's slowing down, he did not let go of me. It didn't matter what was happening. It didn't matter if it was slowing down. He was going to hold on to me for dear life. He thought that he was in danger at that time. The only thing that he knew to do when he was in danger was to embrace his father. You know, Jesus says to, to us, the church at Rosedale, the individual Christians here at Rosedale, hey, you've been through a lot the last year and a half. Hey, there's situations in life that no one else knows about that may be happening right now. There are things that you will go through we saw the last church that Pastor talked about in that great persecution. We see Pergamos in that great persecution. There are things that we go through all throughout life. And Jesus says, hey, hold on for the ride. Jesus said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I am there for you at all times. Just hold on and I will take you through to the other side. I will keep you in safety. I will make sure that you never lose my presence. And sometimes we willingly walk away from His presence for a time. Can I tell you tonight, hey, run back to Jesus. Remain focused on Jesus and His Word. Embrace Jesus because that is the answer for all of our problems. That is the answer for the, all of the solutions solutions that we need in life, holding on fast to Jesus, holding fast to the very words of God. That is the answer. Don't let the world's philosophies fool you. Don't let the flesh misguide you. Hold on to Jesus tonight because that is the answer for all of our problems. That is the answer for the successful Christian life. And there will come a time where we, are, we will be so glad that we did, trusting Jesus with our very lives. I'm thankful tonight 
that even through these illustrations of the churches, we can remain focused on Jesus and His Word. Hold fast, Rosedale. Hold fast, Christian, to Jesus and His Word.